I am Corey Shockey, the Deputy Director General of the International Institute for Strategic Studies, and I am so happy today that in the middle of an aggravating, running around day for myself, I get the pleasure of an intellectual oasis of a conversation with the editor of the IISS's magnificent journal, Survival, senior fellow here at the IISS, Dr. Dana Allen. Dana uh, was educated at Yale and at the Johns Hopkins School of International Studies, SAIS, School of Advanced International Studies, uh, and uh, teaches, both taught there in Washington and is an adjunct professor of European Studies in the Bologna campus now, parenthetically. Corey, close down Dana's ability to do that. He is the author of seven books. Uh, the 2016, his most recent with Steve Simon, Our Separate Ways, a very good book about the divergence between American and Israeli national security interests. My favorite of his books is the 2012 Weary Policeman, American Power in an Age of Austerity. He's written widely for foreign policy, for foreign affairs, for every posh journal you can imagine. But most importantly, uh, he also uh, routinely writes for the journal he edits, Our Own Survival. Dana, thank you so much for making time to talk through what you do with us. Thanks for having me. Uh, so as regular listeners will know, we ask uh, the IISS scholars uh, the same kinds of questions. And the first one is start with what you work on that's topical and in the news. and Tell us how we should think about that problem. Well, I guess uh, the obvious thing to talk about is the current kerfuffle, if that's the right word, involving the resignation of Sir Kim Darak, the um, UK ambassador to the U United States, after the leaking of cables uh, in which he wrote derogatory things about President Trump. Um, this isn't an this is not an episode, I think, of lasting importance for UK-US relations. They will obviously get over it. But I think it does reveal things that are significant, including uh, some significant illusions regarding the so-called special relationship. Um, you know, there has been, on the side of Brexiteers, the idea that Brexit will be compensated for or cushioned by the American relationship. Economically, that doesn't make a lot of sense. Um, Britain's re economic relations with the EU, the rest of the EU, are always going to be dominant. And its future prosperity is going to be, to a large extent, dependent on those relations. Politically, you know, it might have made sense if Brexit happened, had happened in a benign international envir environment. But I think this incident um, this is an indication that the environment is not as benign as it used to be, and particularly not for a middle power um, like Britain. Um, so, you know, my, 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 ba my basic take is that Brexit is going to diminish the United Kingdom and will not, by extension, improve the special relationship. Um, rather, it's likely to diminish that, too. 
Now, you know, there, you, you, you could always, I suppose the proponents of this idea that a global Brit Britain anchored in a special relationship with the United States is gonna do better after Brexit would, you know, say, well, there are different American administrations, different American foreign policy. They, there's, a, there's a Trump reaction to Brexit and there's a more traditional um, American foreign policy reaction to Brexit. And by more traditional, I would say, uh, you know, I would, I would include presidents like Obama and, and both President Bushes. Um, what this incident, what, what this controversy shows is the, the Trump version is difficult to manage. Uh, President Trump is, let's put it, at least confusing in, 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 in the parameters he sets for relations with allies, and that clearly includes the United Kingdom. I, I love that you are framing the discussion about Brexit as a discussion about the bet Britain has made on its American relationship. And, and that's one of long standing, of course, but from, in my mind, it deepened materially during, um, uh, during Tony Blair's government when the British Defense Reviews began uh, stating as a fundamental assumption that Britain would never fight a war without American assistance. Uh, how far do you think the relationship is genuinely rocked? If you were the Secretary of State for Defense in the United Kingdom right now, would that assumption in your planning make you nervous? Uh, I don't think that that assumption is rocked. And you know, I think I said at the outset uh, that or at least I meant to say at the outset, that the common interests between the United States and Britain are still there, they'll still endure, there is still a kind of a special relationship. And so that planning assumption is probably correct. Um, but I'd say a couple things about it. First of all, uh, while Britain may assume that it's not gonna fight without the United States, the United States may have less of a regard for what Britain brings to the table. Uh, That's defense, a very good point. Defense spending for any country, possibly leaving the United States aside, is you know, decided at the margin. And a, an economically, a relatively economically weaker Britain is gonna have a smaller defense budget. I think that's, it's not inevitable, but I think it, it, it's very, very likely. I mean, the other answer I would give is that I mean, war is, of course, an extremity. It's not the normal stuff of foreign policy, or it's, maybe it's, it's the normal limiting condition. It, it, it hovers over all foreign policy. Uh, but within the parameters of, you know, of a peaceful situation, uh, or in, within the parameters of peacetime, a country like Britain you know, tries to exert influence um, conduct diplomacy, uh, you know, with a range of partners. Um, Britain, you, you alluded to the fact that this, this sort of bifurcation or this tension between a European vocation and American, an American special relationship is a very old one. It goes back at least to World War II. Um, 
British policy, though, has always tried to balance, let's, let's put it that way. And it's always been pushed by Americans, again, there are a few exceptions to this, but it's usually been pushed by Americans to have a place in Europe because Americans, American administration saw that as being in the American interest. Um, I think the Americans are still gonna be, see that in, in the American interest. The Trump presidency is an, an, an anomaly in this regard, uh, but you know, assuming we return to something like the traditional American foreign policy, you're gonna see a marginal shift of American interest and attention, I would say, to France and Germany um, and away from the United Kingdom. It's not gonna be catastrophic. It doesn't mean the end of the special relationship. It's marginal, but it's not what some Brexit proponents imagine, which is a, a supercharged revival of the special relationship. Yeah, yeah, I think that's really interesting. So one of the things I notice about our terrific team of analysts here at the IISS is that many of the best of them uh, come from backgrounds as journalists. And I actually did not know about you until I was getting ready for this interview that you too got your start as a journalist, that you covered uh, state politics in the great state of Maryland, that you covered finance issues in London. How did you get your start as a scholar? How do you, how do you come to the path that makes you the editor of a prestigious scholarly journal? Well, as you imply, I came to it sideways. Um, <laughs> I, w I was an English major at Yale, and like many English majors, saw myself as a, as a budding novelist. And so I took, the, <laughs> I took the Hemingway route of working for provincial newspapers, uh, which I did for a few years. Um, and after about four years of covering things like the Maryland State House and criminal courts, I emulated a family friend uh, and enrolled or applied to um, Johns Hopkins SICE, the School of Advanced International Studies. Um, I, I applied to the Bologna Center, Bologna, Italy. Um, I had never actually been to Europe previously, which is a little odd because I've sort of almost never left since then. Yeah. Um, uh, my, you know, my first, my plan was to continue as a newspaper journalist or some kind of journalist. Um, but while at, at Johns Hopkins SICE, I acquired a mentor, which I think is an important pivot of a lot of these stories. Uh, his name was and is David Kaleo. I love David Kaleo. Uh, a, you know, a, a, a great scholar and a, you know, a, a very important and positive influence on a lot of people. Yeah. Um, a lot of his students, like me. Um, he was the founding director, he's emeritus now at, at Johns Hopkins, but he was a founding director of European Studies at SAIS. I say the founding director. Gave me say. my first teaching job well, in the European Studies program at SAIS. Then we have that in common. But the, the interesting thing about David, or one of the many interesting things about David, he had established when he was teaching at Yale a program called History, Arts, and Letters. And he always took a very broad cultural, historical, economic, but also literary approach to the study of, of Europe, the study of the United States, 
And he brought the same broad view uh, of, of, of teaching um, to Sice. And um, so I think that this has kind of infected me. I, I, or I hope it's infected me. It's certainly what, what, what I've taken from David, a view that, um, you know, international relations is, is not a particularly wonky study. It's, a, it's, a, it, 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 it's history, in a, in a sense, and it's contemporary history, of course, but it has to be grounded in every dimension of, of, of global, and in my case, American and European history. Uh, so I hope that your favorite book in your field is one of literature, given the answer you've just said. What is your favorite book in your field, Dana? Uh, well, it is certainly a book of literature. I, you know, I, I hesitate with this word favorite. Um, I mean, there are a lot of great books, and the one I've decided to choose for this question <laughs> nice distinction. is a, actually a rather horrifying book. Um, but it's important to American and world history, and it's important to me personally, because it was written by, I, the author was a teacher of mine at Yale, and I used the book for my own teaching uh, um, at Johns Hopkins in Bologna. The book is Hiroshima by John Hersey. Mm. Um, you know, I think there was a panel of journalists or some sort of panel at New York University a few years ago designated it as the most important work of journalism, of, the, uh, of American journalism of the 20th century. Um, and what's, what's fascinating about it is that it deals with a human and a moral calamity in the most unmoralistic way possible. It's a classic, you know, I, I mentioned that I use it in teaching. It's a classic example of the principle in writing of show, don't tell. Um, and Hersey, was, Hersey didn't talk about it very much, but he was interviewed a couple times about it. And he said, yes, this was very conscious. I decided to really try not to insert too much dramatics into it to give the unmediated experience of the six or seven survivors of, of the bombing of Hiroshima that he chose, um, to tell their stories in almost pedestrian terms because, uh, in a sense, that made it more relatable. Um, and it also made it a, a rather subversive book because it was, you know, it, it came out, or at least it, I, I guess the research for it, his trip to Japan came about a year after the war. Um, and it took him about six weeks to write it. And, it, and so it came out within 15 or 18 months of, of, of the bombing, of the destruction of Hiroshima. Um, and it was a sensation. It, it, it was fascinating if you look back at that book's reception that within a year and a half of a total war against an enemy that was, raci was demonized in racial terms, it struck a chord of incredible empathy in the American public. Uh, you know, I mean, we're talking not the whole American public, obviously, but it, you know, it, it, it struck a real, a real chord. I think that's to the credit of Americans. Um, they were in apparently a generous mood after World War II, which is, I think there's considerable other evidence of that. Um, but the fact that, um, you know, that he could ring this, or he could strike this chord of empathy 
had an important role, I think, and I don't want to exaggerate this because it's complicated, but he had, it played some role in transforming attitudes about nuclear weapons and creating the nuclear taboo. So it was, a, mm -hmm. it, 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 was, it was an important document in a kind of broad definition of American post-war liberalism. And a pinnacle of how storytelling really has, um, has the ability to accomplish policy consequences, right? That we tend to think so narrowly about how we do the work in security studies. Yeah. And yet here, a journalistic account of riveting stories about ordinary people's lives when they are caught up in, in devastating wartime circumstances um, really did have an enormous effect. In some ways, paralleling in security studies um, what books about the environment did early on in the environmental movement, which is change people's consciousness about it. They think about the problem in a different way. I, I think that's right. And I, you know, I think in a way that's a better way of putting it than, than I was trying to, but, uh, or than I succeeded to. I mean, but I, you know, what I think is really, really crucial to understand or, or to, uh, to remember is that although it had these effects, it was not a crusading book. Right. And Hersey was it's not It's very a, restrained yes. as a key to its power. Hersey was not a crusader. One of the interesting things is that he, um, the, he, he later, not that much later, wrote some hugely admiring, uh, uh, a serialized uh, New Yorker profile of Harry Truman, uh, the author of the decision to bomb Hiroshima. And he, he, he was a huge fan of Truman, so he, you know, he was not an anti-nuclear zealot by any means. Right. So what is the convent? I think of your field as um, the entire horizon. Even though you write on transatlantic issues and you teach on transatlantic issues, you write a lot about Israeli security issues. Um, and their broader foreign policy ramifications. But I actually think about, because you edit a journal of such expanse, I think about your field as the entire horizon of strategic studies, uh, so much broader than most people's. So in all of that expanse, tell me some conventional, give me an example of conventional wisdom that's just wrong. Okay, I'm not gonna say I, I'm not gonna say it's just wrong because it's not just wrong. But I think there has to be a lot of reflection on the concept of credibility and the use of force in in reinforcing credibility. I mean, we had, of course, a big debate about this, a continuing debate about this in um, the aftermath of President Obama's uh, decision to negotiate a deal rather than punish Syrian use of chemical weapons um, with, with military strikes. That's a kind of recent example. It's very contentious, um, and we can come back to it, obviously. But I, you know, I would just observe that the relationship between the use of military force and 
a, a, a state's credibility, I mean, we're talking about the United States in most of these cases, is not straightforward. Um, I'll give you two examples that I can think about, think of. Um, one, you, you mentioned my interest in Israel. Uh, on the eve of the Six-Day War, which obviously the Six-Day War had um, transformative consequences in the Middle East that we're still, still dealing with. But on the eve of that war, Israel was clamoring for the international powers, including the United States, to make good on a promise that Israel thought they had made, and I think that they did make at the end of the Suez War, to guarantee Israel's passage through the Strait of Tehran. And in, and in fact, that the, the Egypt's closing of that strait to Israeli traffic, uh, Israeli vessels, was a causa belly for, for Israel um, leading to the war. Um, there was a lot of debate in Washington about making good on this. One person in the United States government who strongly advocated a organizing an international naval task force to guarantee Israel's right of passage was Eugene Rostow, who was Under Secretary of State at the time. The United States decided not to do it. And if you look at the debate at that time, it's pretty clear that one reason they decided not to do it was because of what someone, uh, somebody at the time called a bad case of Tonkin. Tonkinitis in the United States. Basically, the United States was bogged down in Vietnam. They didn't want to open up the possibility of another of another war, and getting involved with something that might be re reminiscent of the Gulf of Tonkin um, incident. Um, now, the irony here, and the reason I bring it up, is because around this time, and in, in in the year previously, Lyndon Johnson had been begging American Jewish leaders, um, and also, in fact, the president of Israel, to recognize that the American war in Vietnam was important for American credibility. And he specifically said, if we don't, if we don't stand by the small nation of South Vietnam, <laughs> then we're unlikely, it, it'll rob the credibility of our promise to stand by the small nation of Israel. And Johnson explicitly used use this argument. And he wasn't wrong. I mean, you know, I, but, but the point is that there's also an opportunity cost. The fact that we were bogged down in Vietnam didn't increase but diminished our ability to make good on the promise to keep the Strait of Tehran open. So let me pull you to a contemporary example. President Trump calling off the retaliatory strikes on Iran a few weeks ago. Uh, planes are already in the air, supposedly, and the president decides uh, that he doesn't want to risk a war with Iran over attacks ostensibly by Iran of, of international shipping and in international waters. Does that have any effect on American credibility? How does this fit into this complicated subject? Where would you put that in the... You know, it, it certainly has an effect on American credibility, but I think what it does is reveal the truth, um, which is that President Trump does not want to go to war. Um, and it's probably good not to bluff, uh, or at least if you're bluffing in, a, in such a volatile situation where 
military confrontation and war is a real possibility, um, you're not going to, um, well, uh, it, 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 uh, bluffing can be dangerous, let's, let's put it that way. So uh, my assessment of the National Security Advisor, John Bolton, is that he's doing his job badly because he and Secretary Pompeo keep, in the case of North Korea, in the case of Iran, possibly even in the case of Venezuela, they are driving administration policy towards a very hard line mm -hmm. that has as a constituent element the use of military force to achieve the president's objectives. They keep setting up that dynamic and the president keeps not being willing to carry it out when you get there. And that strikes me not only as damaging to American credibility, to the extent that credibility matters, and I, I, yeah. I support your point that this is a lot less straightforward than most people treat it as. But the second piece of it is that, you know, we've been through, we've seen this movie a few times before, and it's just bad tradecraft to keep putting the president in a position which, which requires him perhaps for reasons of credibility, to use military force when that's obviously not his inclination. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree with that. And I also think that it shows, you know, I, I insisted that I, I, I'm not trying to call this a completely wrong form of conventional wisdom because in the example you're using, actually, it, it does show the problems of, of reduced credibility. One of the problems you see is that Iranian leaders are saying openly, and, and I've heard Iranians privately say, uh, they don't believe the United States will go to war. They think they've read this president, and they know he doesn't want to do it. Well, that obviously invites challenge, challenge and since the whole system is sort of rigged up with a possibility for war, it could lead to a very bad miscalculation. Um, so that's the, in a sense, that's the obverse of, of credibility um, leading not to, I don't know, appeasement, but leading to, leading to a military crisis, leading to war. So let me ask you, uh, in what of your huge body of work is your favorite? What's the work you like best that you've done? I should probably say, uh, I should probably cite survival here um, because it's probably <laughs> the most important thing I've done. It's certainly but you what clearly, I put that's not the answer you want to give. Well, I'm, I'm very proud of, of survival and I put a lot you of my life be. into it. But I think that, you know, since I said I wanted to be a writer um, and I, I do write books, I'm going to name a book. I was pleased to hear you. Um, say you liked Weary Policeman. Um, that's, I think... I think it's a terrific um, book. Something that I'm quite proud of. But I, I actually think Our Separate Ways, you know, it's my re most recent book. And I think it, um, it delves into so many subjects that I'm, I'm interested in. It, I'm, I'm fascinated by Israel. I'm fascinated by the U.S.-Israeli relationship. Um, I'm concerned about it. Um, and that's, the book was an expression of that concern, a sense that, you know, these two societies that have long been mirror images of each other, um, the mirrors are breaking, they're growing apart. 
On the other hand, the mirrors are breaking internally, too. There are divisions between the United States and Israel, but there are divisions, there are growing divisions within both societies. I just think the predominance of, you know, the winning coalition in the United States is more likely to go take it in one direction, and the winning coalition in Israel is more likely to take it in another. But really, um, what I, this was a book I had wanted to, or a subject I had wanted to grapple with for a long time, because it's really fascinating the way U.S.-Israeli relations have been tied up with so much of what the United States thought it was doing in the world, both um, as a strategic power, a strategic guarantor, but also as a promulgator of liberal values. And the U.S.-Israeli relationship was a values-based, has been a values-based relationship and has been a strategic relationship. And it's had different emphases at different times since, since the birth of Israel. Um, you know, my major concern and the concern of my co-author is that that values part is, is straining, is going to strain to the breaking point. Excellent. Uh, your favorite data visualization, my friend, right. so that we can post it with this interview. Well, I hold in my hands, um, I, I should start by saying that of all the publications at IISS, mine is the one with the least data visualization. So, mm. you know, it's text, 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 which some people may find a little bit dreary, but that's what I work in. But this is more than compensated by my, for by my colleagues um, in our defense analysis um, team. Uh, they put out a chart. I, I don't know how long they've been putting it out, but I'm looking now at a version that goes back to 2014, and I also have the, uh, I guess, the 2019 version. Or no, I guess it's not out yet. But um, it is a, a graphic representation of states by their defense budgets, the top 15 defense budgets in the world. And it looks like one of those uh, maps used, or one of those charts that at least in the 1960s in elementary school we would have on our, on our elementary school <laughs> wall showing the planets <laughs> and pointing out that, you know, almost all the other planets could fit inside Jupiter. Right. Uh, and the United States is Jupiter. Um, <laughs> So this got a lot of, when it first came out, I think, uh, I, I can't remember exactly, but when it was first published, it got a lot of publicity in the world. Um, it's a it was great visualization. All, all over the place. Um, and it's opened, you know, there are different kinds of interpretations you can make of it. Um, one is to say the United States has an awfully big defense budget. Um, and if you add together the United States and its allies, um, it's quite, it's quite, it's quite impressive. Uh, on the other hand, between the 2014 and the 2019 um, versions, you've certainly noticed the growth of China, and if that continued at the same rate, um, you, you, you see China meeting the United States in the not very, very distant future. I think one of the, you know, another way of looking at it is you can sort of see why the United States is seen, by, seen as a threat by some countries, or at least why countries don't understand why the United States is threatened. At the same time, the United States, I mean, this is actually a, an unsurprising reflection of the fact that the United States, the Jupiter on this chart, is the only country 
that actually has global responsibilities and global military commitments. Mm -hmm. I have one other thing that this chart tells me, which is that in the debate about transatlantic burden sharing, defense burden sharing, you sort of see the problem that the European allies have. Whatever they do that's put in terms of the burden, burden sharing debate against the massive American defense budget is gonna be seen almost as tokenism. And that's a kind of difficult sell in, let's say, the German parliament to begin with. I mean, uh, making the American ally and protector um, satisfied that other countries are pulling their weight is actually a very good idea and they should do it. But you can see how it's difficult in parliamentary debates. I love that you took a single data visualization and showed us what it looks like from a whole bunch of different perspectives, Dana. I suspect that's a key to why, such you, why you are such an excellent curator of articles for your excellent journal and our excellent journal, Survival. Thank you for giving us a perspective about the, the enduring common interests in the Anglo-American relationship, turbulent as it feels at the moment, and also the caution that uh, as the economic consequences of Brexit reduce the space for British defense spending, that that could well lead to less regard for British military contributions by the United States, something that Brexit's advocates uh, have not taken into account. I loved your description of your sideways path into strategic studies from David Kaleo's uh, teaching about history, arts, and letters. Thank you for encouraging us all to go read or reread John Hersey's Hiroshima, a monumental book in our field, uh, for causing us to reflect on the, the conventional wisdom that you have to use military force when threatened in order to have credibility that that dynamic may be a lot more complicated and that those of us working in this area need to give more careful, more discriminating thought to that. Um, and thank you for reminding us also to go read your favorite book that you've written, Our Separate Ways. Dana Allen, Editor of Survival, Senior Fellow here at the International Institute for Strategic Studies, thank you for the excellence of your work for this institution. Thank you, Corey.